the big mistake that companies make is they focus only on, we need leads, we need them now. The fact that only 5% are in market at any given time, if you're doing lead generation, if you're worried about collecting leads today, you're missing the other 95% of organizations out there that are important to your future growth. You can't just play the short game. Figure out like, how do we play the short game to drive revenue now without ignoring the long game, which is the demand generation. Every SaaS company plays for high stakes, but what does it take to dominate the market right now? Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing, the podcast where we dive deep into the latest trends and strategies in SaaS marketing that are really working today. I'm your host, Paris, and our guests are SaaS CMOs, founders, and specialists, and we discuss one trendy topic in the industry per episode. Ready to unlock the true power of marketing strategy? In this theme, we'll explore the world of cutting-edge marketing strategies and tactics that are shaking up the SaaS industry. We'll share insights on testing new tactics and uncover the latest developments from digital landscape giants like Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll also explore how AI is revolutionizing the digital landscape and transforming marketing tactics. So grab your headphones and get ready for a marketing strategy masterclass with Paris Talks Marketing. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. And today, my guest is Deanna Shimoda. Deanna is the CEO of Growth Mode Marketing. She's made it her mission to know everything about B2B marketing and demand generation. She's on top of every tech trend and social media modulation. While she skates on the cutting edge of marketing innovation, Deanna stays grounded in a foundation of solid marketing principles. She's used her skills and expertise to catapult multiple technology companies into high growth mode. Now she leads growth mode marketing with the goal to help other organizations travel down this same path of success. Deanna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paris. It's great to be here. Great to have you. When I talk to folks about demand gen and lead gen, a lot of people use these terms interchangeably. I'm guessing that you've gotten this question before too. What is your understanding of the differences between lead generation and demand generation? Yeah, I, I think it's very common for people to think that lead generation and demand generation are essentially the same thing. In fact, I was just talking to a CEO the other day and he's like, demand generation just does not work. I'm done with it. And as we dug in, I found out he was actually talking about lead generation. There is a difference between the two. So with lead generation, that's what a lot of companies are still doing. And that's where your marketing programs are only focused on the 5% of companies that are currently in market. And you're going out and you're asking prospects for a meeting and you're trying to pull them into your sales process. So think about, you know, the cold calling that's being done, marketing qualified leads, having people fill out a form. You flip it over to an SDR or a sales rep and they follow up with the individual. The problem with this approach is that a lot of times there was no actual buying intent that was indicated by that prospect. And so you're chasing after, you know, the needle in the haystack, trying to find those 5% who are in market right now, while you've got 95% who are currently not in market. Mm -hmm. Demand generation on the flip side is about focus on, on driving value, not just with the 5% that are currently in market, but also the 95% that are not looking to buy right now. So your marketing mm -hmm. programs are really focused on building brand awareness, credibility, and trust that will create demand for your company and your technology platform in the market and ultimately capture it. And on the flip side, prospects ask you for a meeting and they're inviting you into their buying process instead. And the reason that this is important 
And it's, you know, critical to understand the difference between lead generation and demand generation is that lead generation tactics are becoming less and less impactful. And that is creating a lead problem for many organizations in the tech space because they're finding they have, even if they're collecting a lot of leads, they're having really slow sales cycles. A lot of prospects are falling out of the pipeline and the close rates Mm -hmm. of those leads are low. The reason for that, you know, we're seeing it with our clients at Growth Mode Marketing. And also there's research from Forrester and Gartner coming out that is also supporting this evidence. They're saying up to 80% of that purchase decision process is made by a B2B prospect before they're willing to engage with a sales rep. So if you stop and think about that, they've got their shortlist by the time they're willing to talk to you, which means if you're going out and trying to find the 5% that are in market, it's already too late unless they already knew about you. They already trusted you. They've been following along with you all along. And that's where, yeah, 80%. And another statistic that came out of Gartner was that 72% of B2B buyers would prefer to have zero interaction with a sales rep at all during the purchase process. What that means is the B2B buyer is much more elusive and they're not engaging with companies on a, you know, one-to-one level early in the process. They're waiting till They're at the end, they're ready to make a decision. So marketing really needs to become your best sales rep to help get them to that 80% so they will engage with your salespeople. And 80% of the purchase decision, that's a kind of a psychological process. What is happening in that 80%? What are they doing to formulate and move closer to a decision? That is a great question. To to be there. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're digging in and they're doing more research. They're going through different channels digitally, you know, to find resources. And they're looking at different ways to find the content. So I always look at it from a demand gen standpoint. I call it the distribution, which is how do you get your highly targeted and focused content in front of your ideal customer profile where they are hanging out? And there's three factors to look at. One is obviously your website. So how do you put enough information on your website to satisfy the need? That means they're looking for things like, you know, product use cases, case studies, pricing, which I know, you know, some companies are really good about putting pricing out there. Some are like, there's no way possible. We sell an enterprise software that's millions of dollars. But putting as much information as you can out there Even having video demos so they can see the product before they commit to, you know, having a sales meeting to see the product. All of those things will help them. But in addition to that, like you're going to have people coming to your site who aren't ready to dig in because they're not going to be buying anytime soon, but they're still curious. So having Mm -hmm. content for kind of each stage of the funnel and creating what I would call content loops where like if I read an article, there's a section that's more content you might like basically keeps them on your site so they don't bounce off Google the next thing and move on, right? Like you want them on your site as long as you can. Mm -hmm. The second leg of that stool is what I call managed channels. So this is really like thinking about how do I build an audience of my ideal customer profile that wants to follow along with my content on a regular basis? So this is the type of content that you can control what you publish, how often you publish, when you publish, right? So think of things like podcasts, webinars, social media, but even things like email campaigns, ABM programs, 
digital advertising, all those things like you can control. And it's all about how do I put that content in front of them and build out that audience so they continue to consume it. That third okay. leg of the stool is third-party channels. So how do you tap into existing relevant audiences where your ideal customer profile is hanging out? And now some of these things are free. So for example, a lot of times being a podcast guest on someone else's podcast, you're tapping into their audience. There's typically not going to be a cost for that, but a lot of it is also pay to play. So if you look like, let's take the HR technology industry, for example, if you wanted to build brand awareness in that industry, you specifically are going to go to the industry associations, publications industry influencers and look at ways to get incorporated into their content, whether it's doing a co-webinar with them or having them write an article that quotes you or paid for sponsorships, all those different type of things. I want to distinguish a little bit more the differences between that second leg and the third leg, because I, I understand that the first leg is about the website and the content that you put mm -hmm. on the website. That's the the so-called owned media. Is this similar to the owned, earned, and paid, or is it uh, a little bit different in terms of the, the framework? Yeah, I think it's it's similar to that, yeah. but you know, the, the owned, earned, and paid technically could go across both the managed and the third party. Managed is, is actually about the fact that you have direct control. So you can, you can run ads on LinkedIn and on Google, and you can also or you can produce a podcast and distribute that. You can create blog posts. You can create other other types of content. You can right. you can have a, a YouTube channel. But these are all things that you can create and that are under your direct control as far as creation and distribution. The exactly. third leg of this tool involves really the consent of a third party that would validate validate you within a certain audience. Right. Can, right. Exactly. And, you know, I think yeah. the thing to, to also delineate the two is with a managed channel, you're working on building your own audience to consume your content. With the third party channel, you're working on tapping into their existing audience because it's relevant. Yeah. So if you have zero brand awareness, you might actually start with the third party channel to start to build brand awareness in hopes that you can pull them into your managed channel, you know, for example, like get them to start following your podcast because yeah. you're, you know, being written about in different publications. Yeah. What about the challenge for, particularly for a, let's say, B2B SaaS company? What if they can't, if they want to pursue that third leg of the stool, those other third-party associations, but what if they can't really find an association that, that really encapsulates their audience really well? What other alternatives might there be for, for them? Yeah, you know, I do think regardless of who you're selling to, they're going somewhere to consume their information, right? So if you are in a spot where you have a technology, like maybe it's a new category you're trying to develop or it's just, you know, so niche that you're like, mm -hmm. there isn't any association or organization out there that represents that. I think what is important is to go and have conversations with companies and individuals that fit into your ideal customer profile and to ask them, where do you go to consume your information where you hang out? At the mm -hmm. end of the day, if, if they're all telling you like, I can't find anywhere to do it, that's actually not a bad thing, right? Because that creates an mm -hmm. opportunity for you to really build out your managed channel and to build an audience to mm -hmm. attract those people. But I think in most cases, what you're going to find is they actually are going different places to hang out. And there are, you know, it's not just industry associations and conferences. I mean, most industries, there's going to be influencers within that industry that you can tap into. There's usually 
no lack of publications. There's also things you can look at, you know, for example, there's review sites. So how do you build up your profiles on review sites? That's technically a third-party audience. So those would be um, for SaaS companies. Those would be places like G2 and Captera. And exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's also an opportunity to tap into other audiences. Like if you think about it a little differently and you say, okay, who are other companies out there that we don't compete against, but we align really well with? And mm-hmm. they're going after the same type of ideal customer profile as we are. Approach those companies and ask them, like, would you be interested in doing co-marketing? Then you get to tap into their existing audience. They get to tap into your existing audience. And it's a win-win for both parties if it really is a great fit. So I think there's a lot of different ways you can look at how do we tap into third-party audiences that already exist, whether your industry is, you know, flush with options or it feels pretty light. Mm -hmm. I really like this framework in terms of the three-legged stool for demand gen. And we have, I think we've covered that third third leg pretty well. And for companies that are strapped with resources, I do think that's a great place to start where you have an existing audience and you have something interesting to say and you, you need that partner to, to lend you their credibility and give you right. access to the audience. Now, let's say that you've done that and you, you figured out that you do have some budget. You want to move to that second leg, the managed leg. So here's where all the ad channels come into play and uh, LinkedIn is coming up at the top of that list, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, Google, paid search. How do you help your clients think about this very complex, this managed leg? If they have a certain budget and budgets are always limited in Mm -hmm. some degree, how do you help them think about how to allocate that budget the right way across these different managed channels to get the most return on, on the investment? You know, again, I think it goes back to that ideal customer profile and what are the types of content that they consume. So, for example, if you find that a lot of your ideal customer profile companies and the particular roles that would make the purchase decision or help influence it are on LinkedIn, then, you know, a pretty low cost way to build some brand awareness using LinkedIn would be to create brand ambassadors within your organization. And I think there's a lot of people on LinkedIn that actually do that really well, but I guess it's only like 3% of the total population on LinkedIn, right? Who are going in and posting daily and they're posting thoughts and ideas and recommendations and best practices that help their potential prospect and have just a slight twist of, oh, we're tied to the company. Because people buy from people, right? And so people start to follow along with that content. You know, so that's one way from a cost perspective, if you find that your prospects are hanging out on LinkedIn. Now, if you were hiring, you know, or you were selling to nurses, for example, they maybe aren't as active on LinkedIn. You've got to look at the channels where they might consume information. Let's say they're really avid podcast listeners while they're doing their rounds in the hospital and doing paperwork and and whatnot all right, develop a podcast specifically for those individuals. And the thing to think about as you're building out your managed channels, I think when you start, you don't technically have an audience, right? If you're starting from scratch. So let's use a podcast series, for example. On day one, you create a podcast, you put it out there. It's highly unlikely that you're going to have a ton of people listen to your first episode, right? It's actually a very, very slow burn for most organizations. And I was just reading yesterday, if your episode has 50 downloads, it's in the top 25% of podcasts. That tells you how hard it is to really gain a big audience. But 
if you combine that with other things, so you say, okay, I'm starting a podcast. It's going to be highly targeted. Our market is, you know, 500 companies. So I don't need 10,000 listeners per podcast. I'd be pretty darn excited for 50 listeners per episode who are actually people that would buy from us. But that's going to take time. And just because you listen to a podcast doesn't mean you're immediately in market to buy either, right? So you build this omni-channel approach where it's like, okay, we're doing stuff on LinkedIn. We're doing a podcast series. We're doing a quarterly webinar. We're doing email campaigns. So we've gone out and we've built lists up of companies and individuals that fit our ideal customer profile. And we're starting to push all this content out to them that we're doing. And over time with all these different things, what will start to happen is your audience will start to build. And if you do it well, you'll actually start to attract your ideal customer profile because the content you're putting out is hyper-focused for that specific audience. You're not trying to be everything to everyone. Like you've, you've picked this narrower audience so that you can put a story out there that resonates with them versus a more diluted approach of, well, you know, I sell benefit services, technology. Therefore, anybody that has employees and offers benefits is a potential customer. It's like, yes, it's also a very, very crowded tech market. And if you sound like everyone, you're not going to break through the clutter. So let's pick a lane and stick to it from a marketing standpoint until we master it and then move on to the next lane. So one theme that I'm seeing pervade all of these, the three legs of the demand gen stool is audience. It's understanding mm -hmm. audience and being able to create an audience. And how can companies and B2B companies specifically and B2B SaaS companies that have some history, they've been around for a while, how can they leverage their own data to create better audiences? I think if you've got the data, like you can absolutely take it. So like if we're helping a client do an ideal customer profile, there are two things we look at. One is the quantitative data. So taking all this background information on your existing and past client base and really evaluating things like what was the sales cycle length for each client? How profitable are they for you? How many people does it take to support them? How easy are they to work with? You know, looking at all of those factors and then kind of narrowing it down from a number standpoint to say, you know what, if high growth is your priority, these are actually the type of clients you want to go after. And I will say oftentimes what happens is an organization will be like, you know what? Our biggest client is Delta Airlines. We want more Delta Airlines. And it's like, well, why? And they're like, look at the revenue they bring in. But when you go in and you look at the numbers and it's like, okay, it took you two years to close them. You have four times as many people that have to support them. Mm -hmm. They're actually not as profitable as this, you know, company that fits in the mid-tier of your clients who closes in four months and is much easier to manage, takes less people, more profitable. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at high growth, can you afford to wait two years for every client to be added to find out they actually aren't as profitable in the long run? Or mm -hmm. do you start focusing on a bunch of clients that take four months to close and are easier to manage, right? So you mm -hmm. figure out what type of company actually is the best profile to go after. And then from a qualitative standpoint, there are a couple things to do. One, go talk to the internal teams that work directly with those clients to say, 
Who's difficult to work with and why? Who would you take more of any day? And just kind of getting that perspective of, you know what, we'd take more of XYZ company because they're so easy to work with. They're so grateful. They see the value in what we do and marrying it up with that quantitative, mm-hmm. but also then going and talking to those companies and those clients that seem to fit into kind of that sweet spot for you then and taking it to the next level to understand, like, where do you go to get your information? What is it that you truly appreciate about working with this company? How have they solved your problems? What did you expect that didn't happen coming in? What didn't you expect that happened? So kind of getting that well-rounded picture to really narrow into that ideal customer profile, because then from a content strategy, you know, here's who I'm writing for and Mm -hmm. here's how I want to focus and here's the challenges that they have. So we always recommend an ideal customer profile is like the very first step in developing a demand generation engine. Mm -hmm. Then it's getting your unique point of view really flushed out. And then it's feeding that strategy. And from there, that's where the content gets hyper-focused. And that's where you know where you want to start to get your content out to and what vehicles you want to use from a distribution standpoint. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we see a lot of companies and, and clients of ours that will rush straight into content creation, just thinking that we need to be yeah. active. We need to be churning out every week or multiple times a week, we need to be churning out this content, uh, X number of posts. And they're kind of all over the place, but there's a lack of a cohesive strategy. There's no editorial calendar. There's no ICP definition. There's no kind of a mapping of pain points or challenges to those ICPs. It, it is a really uh, just a shotgun approach, a random approach of what do, we, what do we feel like writing about this week? And, and let's throw something up there because we did some keyword research and we think maybe we can rank for this term. Let's try to write a blog post for it. Absolutely. I I see that a lot, you know, and it kind of floors me how many companies don't have a formal strategy. And like recently, I I was looking up statistics because on uh, my own podcast, we were going to talk about content marketing and some of the mistakes that we see organizations make. And one of them is a lack of an actual like strategy or plan. And I found the Content Marketing Institute last year published some statistics. And one of them was that only 40% of companies have a documented strategy for content marketing, which means 60% of them are just doing it, what I'd call random acts of marketing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. even if they're like, we have a strategy, is it documented? No. It's like, okay, that's not a strategy. You're just every week or month or day, however often you're creating content, you're like, what should we write about this week? How about this topic? You know, and they're putting it out there. And what happens is it's all over the place and Mm -hmm. it's not doing what it could be doing for you because I truly believe like if you have a really focused content strategy that is hyper focused and targeted to your ideal customer profile and you're doing it well, over time, you're actually going to start to attract those companies Mm -hmm. because you're speaking their language, you're talking about their pain points and demonstrating that I truly get the challenges that you have for the type of company that you are. Oh, and by the way, we can help with that, right? Yeah, uh, I love that analogy, the random acts of marketing. <laughs> the, the, the term that comes to mind is random acts of kindness, but it, it's lacking the strategy. And I also think even from a, from a nuts and bolts SEO perspective, you will have less success with SEO with random acts of marketing because Google will also have a harder time to figure out, well, how, how what type of what type of authority, topical authority should I even assign to this website? Because right. I see kind of about this, I see these types of topics, but I don't see some kind of like a hub and spoke or a pillar cluster or 
where there are some pervasive themes and it's clear that there, there are there are some major topics that they're becoming experts at. And then there's maybe some other tangential or, or cluster type pages that are linked to it. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. And I think now we are transitioning into, with this conversation around content marketing, we're transitioning to that first leg of a stool, which is the website. And there is an argument out there that says B2B marketing should abandon websites and move everything to LinkedIn because that's where yeah. the conversation is happening. People don't really go to websites anymore. They, they do their networking, they do their education, and they engage and, they, and demand is generated on LinkedIn. So put all of your eggs in that basket. What would you say to that? I, you know, I think that's a really interesting perspective. I, I get whomever came up with that. I understand what they're saying because, you know, I, I can see firsthand on LinkedIn how powerful it is for individuals and organizations that are really like taking advantage of that platform to be able to get a message out. I think a lot of people are interacting on LinkedIn and it feels more personal and less salesy in some respects. Unless you're blasting a bunch of in-mail, you know, sales emails that you would normally send via email. That's a different story. I yeah. don't think it completely replaces a website because mm -hmm. where I think LinkedIn can add value is you start to be able to consume like small bite-sized nuggets of information that may make you think more favorably and, and remember a brand, but it doesn't give you deep insight. And if I'm going to go buy a $500,000 a year enterprise software, I still need to know the nitty gritty details, right? And so the first thing, yeah. you know, a buyer is going to do when they start to think about making a purchase is they're going to go to that website to learn more about it and to really dig in, right? And I can tell you, like, personally, there are times where I see something posted on LinkedIn that I find really interesting. What do I do? I click on that person's profile to see who they are and where they work. And a lot of times I will click on the company page and then go to their website to learn more about the website. I do the same so. thing. Yeah, I find myself doing a lot, of, a lot of that as well. That same kind of a path. I mean, I think ultimate the credibility and legitimacy is going to come when you, you see a nice piece of content, then you need to validate the person behind it. And then you validate the company behind that right. person. Even yeah, I would never really pay attention to that company's LinkedIn page because I think that's, Seems to be LinkedIn's algorithm doesn't serve up a lot of company page posts in the right. feed. Unless you pay and for it. Most of those pages are kind of, you do the bare minimum to keep an active pulse, but you're not really, I mean, you're not really investing a lot in posts for that company page because you get really very limited organic reach. Exactly. Um, what I see is most interesting now on LinkedIn, and I think where agencies like ours have a, a challenge, but also an opportunity, is how do you activate the C-suite then? Because I think it's pretty much a well accepted now that people have to be the ones, the personal profiles have to be the ones putting that content out there. You can't hire an agency that's going to 
manage your com- your LinkedIn company page and push stuff out. Even with ads, it doesn't work uh, in yeah. my experience. It's got to come from the, the leaders in the company. And a lot of these companies, B2B companies, especially the, the older ones that have history, the C-suite maybe doesn't want to come from behind the curtain. And <laughs> they're not naturally comfortable doing that, um, either getting themselves in front of the camera or simply sitting down and writing, writing a post on LinkedIn. And I see that as a big opportunity, which is to, in a way, work with a coach these people, not necessarily spoon feeding them content, but giving them some direction and trying to inspire mm-hmm. them and educate them. Hey, this, this is where thought leadership is. These are the topics that should be coming from you. So let's start, you know, once a day or, or maybe twice a week, if that's the better starting point, get your thoughts out there and uh, let's start with writing and then let's try to move to video. Do you work with clients in a similar fashion where you're trying to really get the people behind those companies to, to work on their personal brands on LinkedIn? Yeah. Yes. You know, we always recommend it to companies. It's also easier said than done, right? Like, I feel like the marketing team usually is like, this makes absolute sense. Yes. And then they go to, you know, their CEO and and maybe their like chief product officer, different individuals in the organization that they would love to amplify as brand ambassadors. And it never gets off the ground because, you know, reality is it's not an easy lift. You have to kind of get in a rhythm. You have to make time to do it. Mm -hmm. I think there are some leaders and companies that get it and embrace it and run with it. And then you see them out on LinkedIn and they're attracting an audience and and they're doing really well. And then I think there's a lot that's like, that's good in theory. Can you write it for me? It's like, well, no, we want it to be authentic, you know, And, and there are certainly services out there that will write the stuff for individuals and post it for them. But I don't think it has the same kind of authenticity behind it. And I think sometimes it's kind of clear that this is not coming, you know, it feels less personal, that it's not coming from the individual that it's being posted by. So I always encourage companies to do it. I don't feel like in general, people fully embrace and understand it at times Mm -hmm. and the value. I fully agree. If the C-suite, if you can't really activate the C-suite, I, I like the em- employee advocacy as a fallback. And I think you mentioned that earlier too. How can we activate employees in the company to, to, to be brand ambassadors, to contribute? The ones who are already active on LinkedIn with whatever they want to share, whatever they're inspired by, can we recruit them in a natural way um, and maybe also with, with the right incentive system? But can we recruit them to also start to share some of our content? And right. we had a major shift recently where we, um, we did... We were successful in activating a handful of people in our company to start getting more active in sharing things about the company and the industry. And it's, it's been great because the amplification of that is fantastic. And that, that's actually been more successful than any LinkedIn ad campaign that we've run before. And I think that there's a lot of white space for that to employee, uh, employee advocacy on LinkedIn. Absolutely. And I think it empowers employees when they have the opportunity to do that. Now, again, not every employee is going to embrace it or, or want to do it, but I think there are employees out there that if you you give them permission to do it and, and in fact, encourage them to do it and show them how to do it, that it can really take off. And the more voices you have from your companies that are going out there and talking about, you know, the things your company focuses on and the topics that really are interesting to your prospects the more power that it puts behind it, right? And the more of a personal connection that those prospects feel because they're like, oh, I know Jennifer 
I see her posts, you know, every other day on LinkedIn. Well, they don't actually know Jennifer, but you start to feel like you do, right? And I've had people on LinkedIn where, you know, we conversed via LinkedIn, just like posts, commenting on things, whatever. And one day you end up talking to each other and it's like, I've been following you for six months. I feel like I know you, but you don't really know, right? It just, you, yeah. you get that sense of connection because you see their picture and you see their words on a regular basis. And I think that's powerful. Yeah. And yeah. I've been thinking more along the lines lately that the LinkedIn company page, the best use of that is to be a compilation or a, a hub of your employee advocacy. I think this is where you, you can really showcase your people. These are the independent voices. And then the, the brand of the company becomes these people and not the logo. Yeah. You know, and I, I think a fear that some leaders and organizations have, you know, I think it's a couple things. One, they're like, if we have everybody going out and talking our behalf, well, we better control what they say. And they say, no, you know, like, yeah, give them some general guidelines, make sure they use discretion, you know, don't post anything inappropriate or that would reflect poorly or wrong on your company. But you got to give them the freedom and the trust to go and develop their own voice. And I think that's scary to organizations. The other thing that I see scaring organizations on that front is if they go out there and they're really good at talking about this stuff, someone else is going to see that. Our competitor is going to hire them away. And then we lose that voice. So it's like, yeah, that second one, that could happen. But think of all the good they could bring for your organization in that time while they're employed with you. And it, if, if they get poached, they probably would have gotten poached anyway. I mean, yeah. I think it's, it's inevitable. Uh, but that, that second reason should never be a reason why you would, you would try to mute your employees' voices on LinkedIn. Agreed. Um, and it's, it's great for their own personal careers. And we tell folks in, in our agency that we want to help you build your personal brand. And yes, that will help our company brand. But when you move on someday, and most of you will, uh, we, we want to make sure that you're in a great position for your career. We want to invest in your career. And while you're with us, we hope, we hope it's great. We, we do want to benefit. And we want some, some of you, you'll look back at our agency as a springboard for your career. Right. And that's great. And we'll be very happy about that. And if they know that, they're more inclined to want to stay long term, actually. So it does have. I agree. It really has a positive effect, I believe. Great. Well, this, this has been fantastic, Dana, and, and uh, so much more we can go into. As we wrap up, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have asked you? Or yeah. You know, I think the big mistake that companies make is they focus only on the short game, meaning we need leads, we need them now. The fact that only 5% are in market at any given time, if you're doing lead generation, if you're worried about collecting leads today, you're missing the other 95% of organizations out there that are important to your future growth. And so while I appreciate the we need leads, we need them now reality that many organizations live in, you can't just play the short game. You really need to take a more holistic approach and, and figure out like, how do we play the short game to drive revenue now without ignoring the long game, which is the demand generation? because the future prospects are important to the future growth. And so it really is a long-term game if you're looking for high growth. Couldn't, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And with SaaS, B2B SaaS, there is greater pressure than ever before on short-term results with less yeah. resources. Teams are under a lot of pressure to deliver for this quarter, 
But if, yeah, if you're always chasing the short term, I also think that you're not building your brand as well. And that is that is a long-term play. Right. So you need to make sure that there's a future market for, for your services and you need to build a brand that's going to be favorable and that, that people will have a bias towards who are not in market today. You need to focus on demand gen. Make sure that all of marketing's investment isn't judged by what results do we get this month or this quarter? Right. And obviously marketing plays a role in the today as well. But if you step back and really think about it, it's like, yes, what marketing does today is probably not the, the deal that's going to close today. But what they do today could be the deal that closes tomorrow. Yeah. Great. Well, Deanna, thank you so much for being with me today. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.